This is a podcast from the archives of the BBC Ruth Lectures. This lecture in the series The Persistence of Faith, given by Jonathan Sachs, was originally broadcast in 1990. Philosophers love posing dilemmas. Here's one. You're standing in the National Gallery at the opening of an art exhibition. Suddenly a fire breaks out and spreads with enormous speed. In front of you is a priceless Leonardo. To your right is one of the country's most respected elder statesmen. To your left is your four-year-old daughter. You can only rescue one of them. Which do you save? Well, if you were merged into the open air with the painting or the statesman, you might have contributed to the greater good. But I wonder whether we'd altogether trust you as a human being. Somehow the family goes to the heart of our sense of moral obligation. Our ties to our children and to our parents are fundamental, and not as the result of any rule or reflection. Rather, it has to do with who we are, and our peculiar relationship with those who brought us into the world, and those we've brought into being in turn. We'd be inclined to say it's an instinct, a natural feeling. But it's also a matter of culture, of acquired values. Back in 1976, there was an earthquake in communist China, and the Chinese press carried a report about a man who'd rescued a local communist officer from a fallen building. His own child was also trapped, and he'd heard him crying for help. But he chose instead to save the officer, whose social value he considered to be greater. By the time he returned to the wreckage for his son, he found him dead. The communist newspapers wrote about the incident as an example of proper behaviour. What these examples suggest is that there's more than one way of ordering our loyalties. We might inhabit a culture in which family ties mattered less to us than they do now. But what they might also suggest is that such a culture would be an altogether colder and less personal one. The family isn't just one of our social institutions, but in a very real sense, the one on which all others depend. Our families might change. But if they did, much else would change in the way we understood the world, and not necessarily for the better. But that, of course, is precisely what's been happening. Throughout Europe and America in recent years, changes in the family have been significant and sudden. In Britain, for example, the latest estimates are that 37% of marriages will end in divorce. One in four children is born outside of marriage. And cohabitation prior to or in place of marriage has increased to the extent that it's soon likely to be the norm. The proportion of single-parent families has risen from 8% in 1971 to 14% in 1987. In some urban areas, the figure is much higher. In a London, for example, it's more than one in four. Not only that, more people are staying single for longer. There are more and more open homosexual and lesbian relationships, 
so that we've moved within the space of two decades from the convention of the stable nuclear family, husband, wife and children in permanent relationship, to an extraordinary diversity of sexual and social arrangements, many of which are consciously temporary and provisional. One projection suggests that by the end of the century, only one child in two will have parents who were married when it was born and who stay together until it's grown up. Some people would argue that these changes are more apparent than real. People are what they always were. It's just that what they once did secretly, they now do openly. Until the 1960s, there were established conventions of sexuality and marriage, and some of them were given the force of law. Since then, homosexuality has been legalized, divorce made easier, and illegitimacy has had most of its legal disabilities removed. But there's no reason to suppose that until then, what people did always conformed to what they were supposed officially to do. Peter Laslett, for example, has calculated that even in the 19th century, that age of high moral rhetoric, three out of every five first children were extramaritally conceived. As for divorce, the rising figures are at least in part the result of legal reforms which have made available to everyone what had been in the past the preserve of the few. Besides which, divorce isn't necessarily a weakening of the institution of marriage. It may simply be a sign that we expect more from it. The present situation, then, may just be one in which the choices people always sought are now neither legally foreclosed nor morally condemned. It isn't so much that behavior has changed as that we've stopped imposing on it the straitjacket of myth, morality and law. But this, I think, is simply mistaken. A way of life isn't only constituted by what people do, but also by the framework in which they understand what they do. Removing the legal and moral sting from cohabitation, divorce, illegitimacy and homosexuality doesn't leave the world unchanged. The gradual transformation by which sin becomes immorality Immorality becomes deviance, deviance becomes choice, and all choice becomes legitimate, is a profound redrawing of our moral landscape, and it alters the way we see the alternatives available to us. The change has been revolutionary. Think how far we are from the world of Jane Austen's heroines, where demure young ladies spent their time anxiously waiting for the right man, in terms of class, income and character, to come along. It's harder still for us to think ourselves into the Jewish townships of Eastern Europe only three generations ago, made famous by Fiddler on the Roof. There, in the world of my grandparents, a couple would simply not meet without elaborate inquiries and negotiations taking place beforehand between the respective families, often with the help of that archetypal Jewish figure, the matchmaker. Boy and girl met with a view to marriage, and who could marry whom was governed by an elaborate social code, never made explicit, but understood by everyone. Was Chaim the tailor a suitable match for Mendel the grocer's daughter? The whole town would have a view on the matter, so it was as well to get it right. 
The couple might eventually meet and be left alone, but the community was, in a sense, there in the room with them. Since then, a whole cluster of associations has been exploded. In the 19th century, society was still deeply divided by class, religion and ethnicity, and this set firm limits on whom you could think of marrying. Today, those demarcations have almost gone. Not only that, birth control has separated sex from having children. The entry of the state into education and welfare has, to some extent, separated having children from raising them. The waning of religious teachings has removed the stigma of cohabitation and illegitimacy, and marriage itself has lost its once sacramental character. Living together and the ease of divorce have taken from our most basic relationships the sense of permanence with which they were once invested. Old lines of connection and separation have disappeared, leaving us in a world without boundaries. It's not surprising that novelists, playwrights and filmmakers have taken Boy Meets Girl as the primal scene of the breakdown of tradition because it's here that the breakdown has been most immediate and dramatic. Even in that ordered world of Jane Austen, for example, we can hardly fail to notice the new importance the novelist gives to the individual and his or her private emotions, that long journey of modernity from society to self has already begun. And it wasn't long before English novelists were exploring a new kind of emotion, romantic love, which for the first time had the power to break through the iron boundaries of class. By 1908, the Jewish writer Israel Zangwill had produced a play called The Melting Pot, in which a Jewish boy whose parents had been killed in the Kishinev pogrom meets and marries the daughter of the Russian colonel who'd been responsible for the murder. Marriage within the faith, which had been until now a central religious value, was dismissed as antiquated prejudice. As the century proceeded, even romantic love began to seem an anachronism. Sexuality declared its independence from marriage, better bed than wed. The very idea of moral rules began to seem out of place in the context of personal relationships, where once, only a few generations ago, individuals met and in that meeting carried with them the internalized history of a community. Today we meet as spontaneous selves in a present which bears few marks of a shared past or a predictable future. It's not then that what we once did secretly we now do openly. Rather, the values that underlie what we do have been radically transformed. But have these been changes for the better? In some respects, surely they have. They can sometimes steal upon us a mood of misty nostalgia in which the sun always shines on the past. But in the case of the British family... That involves selective vision. It overlooks a history of often loveless but interminable marriages and the dependent and subordinate position of women. In Hogarth's engravings of the 18th century and Dickens' novels of the 19th, there are scenes of appalling brutalities practised on children. Some theorists have suggested 
that it was only with a decline in infant mortality rates at the end of the 18th century that parents could take the risk of investing affection in their children. It was only when you were sure your child would live that you could afford to give it love. And it took enlightened social thought in the 19th century to end the employment of seven-year-olds in the cotton mills of Lancashire. The move from the authoritarian to the democratic family in which each of the members has a say, the idea of love as the basis on which two people come together and get married, even the importance of the family itself as a haven in a heartless world, are all relatively recent and enrich our sense of relationship. So it's hard to place all the changes in the modern family on the side of loss. But there have been at least some voices to suggest that we've not gone far enough. One influential line of modern thought has argued that the family is in need not of change, but abolition. Karl Marx suggested that the bourgeois family lay at the heart of the capitalist economy. Radical post-Freudians argued that it was a source of psychological distress, schizophrenia especially. Feminists, like Shulamit Firestone, have seen it as the perpetuation of patriarchy. And Sir Edmund Leach, in a famous sentence in his wreath lectures, summed it up when he said that far from being the basis of the good society, the family, with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets, is the source of all discontents. Now, whether or not we agree with these ideological critics, they take us to the heart of the proposition with which I began, namely that the family is not just one of our institutions, but a formative one, the crucible in which much else of our social structure takes shape. We learned from Malinowski's studies of Melanesia and Margaret Mead's of Samoa that there are very different ways of organizing sexuality, kinship and socialization. But we also know that these would result in different attitudes to politics, property, and the relationship between the individual and society. The French anthropologist Emmanuel Todd has recently traced an impressive set of connections between different family systems and the worldwide distribution of political ideologies. The absolute nuclear family, for example, is closely related to liberal democracies and authority in the home to authority in the state. The family is the birthplace of our social world. So we might arrange our families differently, but it'll be a different kind of world that we'll be creating. It was Margaret Mead who pointed out that the deep sentiments we call human nature are formed by the primary groups in which we're raised. If these are essentially changed, she said, human nature will change with them. It's a discovery that the pioneers of the kibbutz made early on. Having abolished marriage and the family and handed children over to collective childminders, they found that they'd raised a generation quite unlike themselves, less emotional, striving and individualistic, more matter-of-fact, and inclined to think of identity in terms not of the self but of the group. As our families fragment so do the deepest structures of our consciousness.
When a certain kind of family breaks down, so do the values which once linked parents and children and gave continuity and character to our inherited world. Which is precisely why ideological radicals have focused on the family. Change it, and you change humanity. But let's turn the argument round. If changing the family would change the world, protecting the family might be the best way of protecting our world. Which is, I believe, what religious tradition has been doing until now. Because the Hebrew Bible is above all a book about the family. It begins with one, Adam and Eve, and the command to bring the next generation into being. And from then on, the book of Genesis never relaxes its grip on the subject. It endlessly turns to some new variation in the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel and Leah, these aren't miracle workers or agents of salvation. The heroes and heroines of Genesis are simply people living out their lives in the presence of God and the context of their families. And we can perhaps now see that this forms the foundation of the Bible's larger moral and social themes. The family is the matrix of individuality. It's that enclosed space in which we work out, in relation to stable sources of affection, a highly differentiated sense of who we are. It's hard to imagine a culture which didn't possess a close family structure arriving at the breathtaking idea that the human individual is cast in the image of God. De Tocqueville once wrote that as long as family feeling is kept alive, the opponent of oppression is never alone. By which he meant that the family is the great protection of the individual against the state. It's no coincidence that totalitarian regimes have often attacked the family. Against this, it was the Bible that gave rise to the great prophets who dared to criticize kings. The family is the birthplace of liberty. Not only that, it's where we care for dependents, the very young and the very old, those to whom we gave birth or who gave birth to us. And it's a short step from this to the biblical vision of society as an extended family, in which the poor and powerless make a claim on us by virtue not of abstract principle, but of feelings of kinship. It's this that lies behind the prophetic identification with the widow, the orphan and the stranger. They're not merely people with theoretical rights. They're part of the family. Marriage for the Bible is a covenant, and one closely related to that which joins humanity to God and the members of society to one another. A covenant isn't merely a contract. It's a religious, not just a legal agreement. It's one in which the partners bind themselves to mutual fidelity and concern so that the biblical idea of society, which flows from its view of marriage, is different from the secular idea of a social contract. It's not just an association for mutual advantage, it's a covenant of loyalty and trust. And the family is where we discover our past. The Bible instructs us to 
teach our children diligently, speaking of God's law when we're at home or on the way, when we lie down or when we rise up. Repeatedly, it tells parents to tell children the story of their origins, the exodus, and the long journey to freedom. The family is where traditions are handed on, where I learn that the past lives on in me and through me in my children. It's the basis of collective memory, and on it rests the biblical view of history as the stage on which the covenant between man and God is enacted and within which we construct a just society. The family is a narrative institution, the place where we tell the story of where we came from. And its breakdown leads to what J. H. Plum called the death of the past, the loss in our society of a historical sense. So that the family as a religious institution is what holds much of our moral world in place. It lies behind our ideas of individual dignity and freedom, of social kinship and concern, and our sense of continuity between the future and the past. Lose it, and we'll lose much else as well. Why then do we seem to have been doing just that? Because of that most powerful legacy of the Enlightenment, our idea of the abstract individual detached from the collective bonds of history and sentiment. The self of modern moral theory has no limits on what it can choose to do or be other than those externally set by law. No one way of life has any intrinsic precedence over any other so long as it's freely chosen. Such a theory tends in the long run to dissolve morality altogether. But certainly it deconstructs the family. It undermines its ethical foundations, because at every stage the concept of the family stands counter to the idea of unrestricted choice. To be a child is to accept the authority of parents one did not choose. To be a husband or wife is to accept the exclusion of other sexual relationships. To be a parent is to accept responsibility for a future that I may not live to see. Families only exist on the basis of choices renounced. And our secular culture has made that voluntary closure of options hard to accept or even understand. The family has persisted as an institution, but increasingly we've lacked the resources to say why it should. Our intellectual world hasn't given it space. To the contrary, our current lack of any norms relating to sexuality and marriage precisely reflects the supreme importance we've given to the abstract individual without binding commitment either to the past or the long-term future, open-endedly free to choose or unchoose any style of life. The family has lost its moral base. Admittedly, this hasn't happened because of Enlightenment philosophy alone. It's happened because of social changes of which that thought was an early anticipation. Education and welfare, which once took place within the family, have been largely transferred to the state. Television means that information is no longer filtered to the child primarily through its parents. The pace of change means that we can no longer assume a common world with our children, 
And in a technological society, age loses the authority of wisdom. It's our children who understand computers, not us. The mass entry of women into the workforce has dramatically changed our child-rearing practices. And these changes, along with the breakdown of our moral traditions, have weakened the force of family bonds. We can't unwrite them. But we can't suppose that they don't have momentous implications for those who'll inherit the world we've made. The irony of the 1980s is that the decade which witnessed the worldwide retreat of the state before the individual also witnessed the accelerated disintegration of the family, the primary protection of the individual against the state. Our private lives will be significantly eroded if one child in two will no longer reach maturity in stable association with the people who brought it into being. What then will stand between us and the impersonal operations of the free market and the state? From whom, other than our parents, will we learn who we uniquely are? The 20th century, through Freud and others, has taught us the enduring influence of our early experience of childhood. But the 20th century has rendered the family uniquely problematic, and the world that witnesses its loss will be a colder and less human place. But it's here that we come up against a surprising fact that's run like a connecting thread through these lectures. Despite the many factors making for its erosion, the family persists. It still lies at the heart of our sensibilities. Few things so distress us as television pictures of children separated from their parents, or move us like scenes of families being reunited. Overwhelmingly, we do still marry and hope that our marriages will last. In a recent survey, almost nine out of ten of those interviewed said that they valued faithfulness as the most important ingredient in marriage. We still believe in the family without quite knowing why. The family is a religious institution that survives in a secular culture. Our attachment to it makes no sense in terms of the theories or social changes that have surrounded us since the Enlightenment. But it makes a great deal of sense in terms of the argument I've been advancing that we're still more religious than we suppose. Faith isn't measured by acts of worship alone. It exists in the relationships we create, and it lies deep in our moral commitments. The Jewish tradition saw the family as the greatest religious domain of all. The first commandment in the Bible is to have children, and there's no act we can perform that testifies more lucidly to faith in the future of our world. The survival of the Jewish people throughout almost 4,000 years of exiles and dispersion is due above all to the strength of its families. And it was when parents and children sat together round the table that they could most immediately feel the touch of the divine presence. The family is a much assaulted, much wounded institution, but it endures. Testimony to a sense of covenantal love that can still break through the secular surface of our lives and surprise us 
by its unexpected and religious strength. You've been listening to a podcast from the archives of the BBC Ruth Lectures. For more podcasts, please visit bbc.co.uk/radio4.